and welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett on this last week of October. Today we'll be hearing lots of what's been happening in Palestine. None of it good, but we're hoping, lots of people are hoping that at last the world is taking notice of what Israel is doing to the Palestinian people and what they've been doing for many, many decades. We'll also hear about a proposed mine in PNG in the area of Ley, where there's been a major earthquake in the recent times and they're proposing to set up a mine, build a 130 kilometre long pipeline to take the waste out to the sea, dump it in the sea, but also that earthquake, well, if it ruptures along the way, the pipe goes right through the city of Ley. We'll be speaking with Emily Mitchell from Jubilee Australia. Peter Murphy, looking at the first 100 days of the Marcos government in the Philippines. And Nick Motton, co-coordinator of Band Killer Drones in the US, looking at the U- to try and also get the UN involved, although it's also a difficult thing when, as Nick says in this interview, the US has a great control over the United Nations. So that's Tuesday home time, but let's have Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was. A week, Jan, listen, when we suffered a collective electric shock as state big supremo, the pejorative Dan, indicated a re-elected socialist government would re-establish the State Electricity Commission, the SEC, to lower power bills and ensure Victoria is 95% renewable by the mid-30s. To be fair, we still have an SEC. When former caring business class party supremo Jeff Footinmouth handed the state-owned asset to his mates so we could enjoy the benefits of the efficiency of the private sector, lower prices and all that, which we've so enjoyed, he retained a shell called the SEC whose sole role is to provide the massive subsidies we provide to Alcoa which uses about 30% of our state electricity and can't possibly afford to pay the bill itself. Anyway, the Trublowazi Capitalist Review led with, the plan to reverse the decades-long privatisation will chill private investment and hurt ordinary investors and workers. And if we had any doubts about that, the report quoted those most reliable of sources who so care about workers, Woodside with Profits Energy, Alien to Workers Energy and the Trublowazi Energy Profits Council. When it comes to their bottom line interests, they certainly do get energetic and don't forget Alien to Workers Energy is so committed to addressing climate change, if there is such a thing, it has plans to close the Loyang power station, Trublowazi's biggest polluter, by as soon as 2047. Real commitment, real concern. But the most sincere concern for workers came from Lord Rupert of Wapping in his Wapping Sin. The pejorative Dan's commitment to 95% renewable energy by 2035 has been slammed as an attack on working families. It opened its report. And who was expressing this heartfelt concern for working families? Why? The Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs, of course, Lord Rupert's regular expert commentator on these matters. Well, on almost all matters. The Institute of Public Very, Very, the worker's friend, the true worker's friend. Unlike evil unions which it and Lord Rupert know are wolves dressed in sheep's clothing when it comes to workers' interests. 
Separately, the Minister for Environmental Pollution, Tania Palut, is sick, put in their place those who suggest the government's dedication to extracting, utilising and exporting gas and coal conflicts with reducing pollution, attacking them as extremists. There are people at the extremes on these matters, she said, while boasting of her plan to prevent methane escaping from livestock which apparently balances the great resource corporations continued fracking and extracting, showing Tania is not an extremist. The socialist opposition in His Most Gracious Majesty's home country moved a motion this week to ban fracking the environment, but the government whipped its numbers into line, and when I heard the Speaker declare, the no's have it, the no's have it, I thought they certainly do, it's completely on the nose. Back here, our socialist government supports fracking the environment despite anti-progress carryings on by Tania's extremists. Perhaps she has a common cause with Lord Rupert's usual suspect columnist, who is so incensed by all these warmists who pursue the myth that is so-called climate change, who tells us CO2 is good for us because it promotes growth and therefore contributes to feeding the world, saving us from starvation which, given he is omniscient, we look forward to his explanation on the long, long droughts and mass starvation and deaths occurring across so much of Africa. We, we can be sure he'll find a way to blame the warmists. Timely warning from the Reserve Losses Bank over new statistics showing wages as a share of the national income have fallen to less than half for the first time in half a century. What a surprise. The fall, the bank tells us, is due to the super, super, super obscene profits the resource industry is enjoying, distorting the figures. Wage earners shouldn't be concerned. The super, super obscene obviously not trickling down to wages, although they may because the bank gave us its affordable mentioned timely warning. See, the evil unions, including the ACTU, claim workers are not enjoying their fair share of profits and productivity. Hence, the timely warning. We must not accept wage and productivity figures produced by the evil unions or their left think tank supporters, the Reserve Losses Bank alerted us. Only caring employers and their knowledgeable think tanks, or so-called think we must assume, can be relied upon to give us the reliable figures. And this must be so, because we know how much caring employers would just love to resolve the problem of slow-wage growth, but just can't put their finger on the solution. Or more correctly, though, that if the lazy, avaricious workers pull their fingers out, that is the solution. Productivity, anathema to the lazy, avaricious. So what seems a simple solution to us is clearly far more complicated, like another headline this week, caring employers seeking how to solve the gender pay gap. Again, we would have thought there was a pretty simple solution, a problem the court solved back in the 70s, showing the difficulties poor caring employers must face trying to abide by the equal pay ruling. Half a century of adjustment and still working on it. One of those lefty, long-haired, commie, greeny think tanks, well, so-called think tanks, unlike genuine, deep-thinking think tanks like the Institute of Public Very, Very Private, the Troubler was the Institute, clearly envious of those super, super, super obscene resource profits, reckons the public purse would have been $20 billion better off this year if the government had introduced a windfall obscene profits tax on the specious grounds that what they extracted from 
flog belongs to the people. Of course it doesn't. Governments give it to them. It's theirs. Isn't class envy such a poison on our classless society? But thankfully, big economic guru Jim Chalmers Capital has assured the great resource giants they have nothing to fear. He most definitely will not ask them to be forced to spend more on their tax lawyers and accountants. The super, super, super obscene profits are all yours. Phew. Indeed, public altruism will go the other way. He insists he will persist with cutting taxes to the filthy rich, which will require a few cuts in other areas. Thankfully, one other area unaffected must be, and Jim has pointed this out, must be the trillions we hand to the merchants of death for all their lovely lethal merchandise. Some cynics have suggested that former big supremo Scuttlemen Morlash son, a.k.a. Scummo's recognition of Jerusalem, West Jerusalem as the capital of Zion, was a cynical ploy itself during a by-election in an electorate with a large Jewish population, which sadly didn't work, showing the sort of conspiracy theories these cynics will come up with. After all, there was also showing his leader, U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, supremo Donald Trump of the poor, what a good guy he is. How true blue Aussie will obey its orders. And I'm sure we all thought the Zionist reaction to the socialists reversing the policy was most rational, especially their accusation the government had taken the decision without consulting them because clearly they were open to a balanced discussion in which they might well agree with the government showing how reasonable they are yet so distressed were they that they had not been consulted they could offer no thanks to the government for iterating its commitment to Zion its support for the occupation of the landless people's land but then I realised the Zion reaction was most reasonable and moderate when I discovered the truth via that most reliable source the aforementioned Lord Rupert of what's whopping usual suspect lackey or sorry columnist who screamed that our minister for going overseas all the time had been a perfectly good little prefect petty left wing and the socialist had capitulated to terrorists showing that all the displaced people are terrorists and the Zion trained killers occupying the non-land to which they were banished who simply shoot them, bomb them, arrest them, bulldoze their homes, control their lives and movements are dedicated pacifists who would never terrorize anyone. Well, anyone who agrees with them 100%. All others are anti-Semites, anti-Semitic, including therefore these occupied landless who must be anti themselves. And the shadow minister for going overseas, etc., Simon Burbling on, attacked the decision as a shambles, showing the government making a decision and announcing it must be shambolic, making logically every government decision shambolic. So Simon could be onto something. His Most Gracious Majesty's home country lost its second Liz in 45 days, one the longest serving, one the shortest. Big difference. But apart from their name, they do have one other thing in common. As Gilbert wrote, they'll not be missed. They'll surely not be missed.
Chairing business class party supremo and would-be big supremo constable Peter Duffer wants Green Senator Lydia Thorpe to be missed from Parliament altogether over a brief affair with a former bikey leader, Dean Martin. That's amore. Rebel hell for rogue senator. The whopping sin screamed a whole page dedicated to how evil is the senator and the bloke involved. But then the very last sentence, right down the bottom... Dean Martin has no criminal convictions. Huh? But they've just spent the rest of the page telling us what a villain he is and what a villain is the senator. So obviously Pete and Lord Rupert and all the righteous screaming must be advocating that every MP must have a conflict with their spouse, partner, lover. In many cases, both partner and lover. That, that's okay, of course. Also, okay, former train killer and being offensive minister, Linda recalls nothing's husband, sat in court every day during evidence she was supposed not to hear but anxious to know about, but she swore they never, never discussed the matter at home each night. Sure. And sure, she denied asking uh, defence lawyers for a transcript, but then admitted she had. And that's also okay, of course, a small memory lapse, and we trust her. So, finally, I'm sure we'll all support the week that was his new campaign to solve this problem, and we thank Pete for alerting us to it. The week that was celibacy in Canberra campaign. Celibacy in Canberra. It's a winner. And for once, we'll be telling pollies where not to stick it. Good afternoon. Algorithms have become these gatekeepers to opportunity. They're already deciding who gets hired, who gets health care, how long a prison sentence someone serves. And what I didn't realize is that a lot of these algorithms haven't been vetted for accuracy. We don't even know how accurate they are. They often run on what's popular, and we all know what's popular isn't always good. And they haven't been vetted for racial bias and for gender bias. I had no idea the scope of invasive surveillance, the the preciseness to which they can predict our behavior, and how vulnerable all of us can be to sort of predatory practices because of these algorithms. And so we need some protections in place as citizens. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. Outrage has filled the Western media in recent weeks over the death of a young Iranian Kurdish woman. 
Masha Amini, who was arrested by the so-called morality police and died in police custody. Whether as a result of a stroke resulting from a recent brain surgery, as the authorities claim, or as her family claim, she was beaten. But what have you heard in the same Western media of the deliberate killing of Palestinian children? Six in the space of a few weeks by armed men and women obeying the orders of a regime illegally occupying their lands. And just before that, seven-year-old Rayan Suleiman died of fear, sheer terror, as he was being chased by Israeli soldiers. His heart gave out. This hypocrisy is so blatant that some might find it unbelievable, but unfortunately for the Palestinian families, it's not. I spoke yesterday with Jessica Morrison, the Executive Officer of APAN, Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. Jessica, it's reached the point of the State of Palestine calling on the United Nations Secretary-General and the Special Representative of the Secretary-General for Children and the Armed Conflict Secretary-General to provide special protection for Palestinian children. But can we first talk about a UN Commission of Inquiry? Yeah, so it's an ongoing um, commission of inquiry. It gave its first report earlier this year and this week, um, in the last week, it has just released its report, its second report. So the first report said the major responsibility has to sit with Israel because of its ongoing military occupation, its unequal treatment of Palestinians and the impunity for any of their breaches of international law. So we must call on Israel to be accountable. That was their first report earlier this year. Their second report released on Friday says that Israel's occupation is inherently illegal. So occupations are allowed in international law. It's kind of seen as a temporary military measure as, you know, things happen. But Israel's occupation of Palestinians' land is not temporary. It has been going on for decades and decades. And it therefore is depriving a Palestinian self-determination in perpetuity and therefore is inherently illegal. And this, this UN Commission of Inquiry said Israel must be referred to the International Court of Justice by the UN. So this is a massive report. The Commission of Inquiry has three eminent conservative, one might say, lawmakers. One of them is Chris Sadoti, who's an Aussie guy who served on the Human Rights Council, I mean, as a Human Rights Commissioner here in Australia. So this is not a group of kind of 3CR listeners, as wonderful as we all are. This is a group of eminent lawmakers who have said Israel's occupation is inherently illegal and has been perpetuating these horrendous things against Palestinians. Where does it go from there? Well, I mean, I think what we're seeing in terms of what's the discourse at the United Nations, like even the United Nations, as conservative it is, is starting to use stronger and stronger language. Because, you know, I mean, we're living through the Russian occupation of Ukraine. We know what the, the response to military occupation should be. And on paper, it's exactly the same to Israel's occupation of the West Bank. But in practice... 
what Russia's facing and what Israel's facing are completely different. So I think now we're finding that even at the United Nations level, they're like our, our annual condemnations of Israel clearly aren't enough because we've been saying it for 77 years and Israel keeps on going. So whether it's enough to see action, we're yet to see. But at the United Nations, both this and a UN Special Rapporteur report, who for the first time, in my understanding, called Israel's occupation settler colonialism and talked about that needing to be dismantled as the key framework, not negotiations then, you know, we're seeing a shift. So hopefully the shift in language will also see a shift in action. What about the situation for the children in Palestine at the moment, where an increasing number of children are being slain by Israeli defence, so-called defence forces? Yeah, Jan, it's been a horrific time in the West Bank. Uh, Just a warning for listeners. Um, This is really distressing stuff. So last month, a seven-year-old healthy boy was walking home from school and he got chased by an Israeli soldier. And if you've got a seven-year-old in your life, you know how little these wee ones are. He got chased by an Israeli soldier until his heart gave out. Like he seems to have literally died of fear. Another 12-year-old boy was shot in the stomach. A 12-year-old boy was shot in the stomach by Israeli forces held on for a few weeks and then died. Every week we're seeing scores of Palestinian children injured, arrested and killed. There's been a 100 Palestinians at least in the West Bank who have been shot and killed by Israeli forces. Deadliest year in the West Bank in a long, long time. So for Palestinian children, men and women... Suddenly, the Israeli occupation, and look, a military occupation is inherently violent, inherently violent. Um, whether it's checkpoints, you know, impacting on what you do, farmland becoming a, a closed military zone. I mean, they're used to living under violence, Palestinians, and we're all too used to Palestinians living under violence. But in the last few months, Israel has ratcheted up its control to horrendous levels. And in the last couple of weeks, things have got even more horrific. In the response to um, two Israeli soldiers being killed, Israel has literally put under siege a refugee camps in Jerusalem and towns in the, in the north of the West Bank. These places are supposed to be under full Palestinian control under the Oslo Accords. You know, so supposedly Israel's supposed to keep their nose out of all these places, but instead there have been near nightly raids. In the middle of the night, Israeli jeeps are going through people's neighbourhoods and yanking people out of bed. So at least 2,000 people have been arrested. 2,000. At the moment, if I've got my maths right, there's 5,000 Palestinians in the West Bank who are in jail. 10% of which had no charges, um, which I think is, you know, 0.1%. One in every 1,200 Palestinians in the West Bank are in an Israeli jail. And if we start to think what proportion of that are children, you know, there's a huge... Anyway, the imprisonment, the injuring and the killings in the last few months have just been horrific. Are you aware of what happens to these people when they are dragged out of their beds in the middle of the night? What's the process after that? 
Yeah, look, it's been really well documented. UNICEF has particularly been scathing with Israel about how it has treated children. But we now know that the majority of children are taken away from the West Bank into into a, a settlement or into 48 Israel um, against UN conventions. So people are taken out of their own jurisdictions, most of which report physical assaults or, or um, threats, many of whom are held in solitary confinement. The vast majority do not have access to a lawyer. Many are questioned in Hebrew, a language that they don't understand. Many are asked to sign statements in Hebrew, a language they don't understand. Um, and are told that, you know, we all know that, that over 99% of Palestinians, once arrested and charged with something, over 99% of them are found guilty. So to be arrested in the West Bank is to have any presumption of innocence dropped, is to have any of your basic human rights evaporated, to have any sense of fair justice or fair treatment evaporate. So this is not people who are being arrested because there's a body of evidence. Israel is regularly sweeping up numbers and numbers of Palestinians in what can only be seen as collective punishment. And, of course, we have to acknowledge, Jessica, that it's not only the, the Israeli soldiers who are attacking the Palestinian people, it's the settlers, and in many cases they're worse than the Israeli soldiers. Oh, there's been an alarming increase in violence by settlers. In the last two weeks, there's been at least 100 incidences of settler violence. And we're not talking about somebody yelling words across the street. We're talking about mobs of extremist Jewish settlers who are, who are rampaging through Palestinian towns and villages and cities, brandishing clubs, throwing rocks in shop fronts, showing, throwing rocks through Palestinian cars. There was an incident of where Israeli soldiers were attacked by settlers because the Israeli soldiers were trying to stop the settlers throwing rocks at Palestinian moving cars. So there is a whole sense where there are mobs of Israeli settlers emboldened by Israeli politics who are going and attacking people. I saw a photograph of a volunteer who was trying to help with the olive harvest being attacked by a group of men with sticks. So out in the olive harvests, as well as in the refugee camps that are being locked down by Israel and uh, the towns that are being locked down by Israel, there are settlers thinking they can get away with the most horrific of violence. And then you have so many people in indefinite detention. Yeah, so Israel is one of the largest um, users of detention without trial. So at a snap of a finger, you can hold a Palestinian in jail for six months. If you want to go before a military judge, <laughs> a soldier, then they can six months at a time just keep keep extending it. We've got Palestinians who've been in jail for years without charge or Palestinians who are regularly in jail for six months at a time without charge. 10% of the Palestinians are sitting in an Israeli jail have never been charged with anything. So not a trumped-up charge, not a charge with no evidence, but no charge at all. Just to focus on those who are shot by the military, whether they're children or adults, 
I have heard the stories that even if an ambulance is called, they can't get through. The Israelis block the ambulance coming. And I'd imagine any other people who might be able to help them are also blocked from trying to attend to those who have been injured. Yeah, absolutely. All those things are true. All those things are true. I mean, I've been in a Palestinian hospital myself, and the the doctors and, and pro- professionals are all amazing people. The issue is what happened, and, and often there are really solid facilities. But often what the issue is, is, as you say, Israel stops people from actually being able to access medical treatment. Um, and many Palestinians who are shot by Israeli forces are left to, and it's gross language, are left to bleed out on the street because Israel refuses to allow people to, to access medical treatment. Shavina Abu Akleh, you know, the most esteemed, loved Palestinian journalist, who was shot in the head by Israeli forces during these escalations in the last few months, who Israel tried to say was was Palestinians that shot her. It's very clear now it was a deliberate targeted killing by an Israeli soldier. She she was lying there on the ground. And Israeli, you know, there's, there's video footage of her lying on the ground, bleeding out before any Palestinian medics were allowed to attend to her. Let's talk about what's been happening here in Australia in the last couple of weeks with the ALP government reversing the decision by the Morrison government of recognising West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. It's been an absolute furor by some of the Jewish organisations. What was the legality of Morrison doing it in the first place? Well, this, I mean, this is the third small decision that Labor has made to start to bring Australia back into the international consensus, which, as we've been talking about, isn't a bold, brave consensus. It's just a status quo consensus. So the status quo consensus, which has operated since 1948, is that we don't know what's going to happen to Jerusalem. You know, the UN plan said it should be a shared international city, a corpus separatum because it's so precious to so many people. So that's kind of the status quo. We don't know what's happening to Jerusalem. Israel took unilaterally the western half in 1948, took unilaterally the eastern half in a military occupation in 1967. We all know those as facts on the ground. And so until Trump came along, the world said, we've got a consensus, we need to, you know, we don't know what's happening with Jerusalem yet, we need to wait and see. And then Trump went along and said, ah, sure, if Israel says it's their eternal and undivided capital, let them have it as their eternal and undivided capital, just completely obliterating any of the international norms and consensus. So during the Wentworth by-election with, with a significant number of Jewish voters, you know, Dave Sharma, who was a former ambassador to Israel, he actually acted as the Australian ambassador for Israel. So he was the Liberal candidate. He stood beside Scott Morrison, and Scott Morrison said, well, maybe we'll do the same. So there was an uproar, as you can imagine. And, you know, they finally did a process after the announcement and went, oh, goodness, where can we politically land? So they made a decision that nobody was happy with. They said, we recognise West Jerusalem is Israel's. So Israel are like, what do you mean? All of Jerusalem's ours. It's all ours. And Palestinians are like, what? 
and the rest of the international community are like, what? Nobody talks about that. So that became Australian policy under the Morrison government. So Australia went back to the international consensus, which is we don't know what's happening with Jerusalem yet. We need to wait and see. So sure, their timing was was off. Um, it was a Jewish religious holiday. But the way that um, many of the pro-Israel groups responded was that it was a deliberate smack in the face rather than return to the status quo. And this sort of manufactured outrage is absolutely disgusting and should not be used to stifle conversations about the substantive issue, which is that Israel is occupying Jerusalem and is smashing international law all over the place. That's the substantive issue that we must be talking about. And, and you know, there was certainly, you know, we saw across Melbourne mainstream newspapers, Jewish people saying, great decision, so glad they've done it. Mainstream Jewish organisations, non-Zionist ones, said, great, thank you for doing it. We're back in the international consensus. There's a chance for fairness now. So actually the extreme right wing, who are being made to see being seen as the mainstream, the extreme white wing of the Jewish community, um, who are being quoted as outraged. So, do we have to wait now for the United Nations General Assembly, or do we have to wait for the International Court of Justice to move on this issue, or what's the next step? Well, certainly, Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza do not think so. So Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza are undergoing mass civil disobedience campaigns. Um, they're sick of waiting for the United Nations and they're sick of waiting for the international community to support their basic human rights to self-determination. So certainly there are waves of protests and Palestinians are standing up and refusing to comply with the, the, the Israeli military. So I think for those of us in the international community, absolutely we need to look at what's happening at the United Nations and we're about to see UN General Assembly votes and let's hope Australia makes another small decision to re respect Palestinian rights and change Australia's voting pattern, which in the last you know decade has been pretty dismal. As a first step, yes, let's see some good voting in the General Assembly. But we must not let that be the only thing that happens because there's been the votes in the UN General Assembly for decades calling on Israel to stop its settlement, calling on Israel to withdraw from the territories that are occupied in 1967, calling on Israel to be accountable for its actions all over the place, and it has not. So we cannot say... The United Nations is the only only thing. You know, Australia should be recognising Palestine, absolutely, as a, as, as a symbolic step. Um, but as the UN Special Rapporteur said, as the Commission of Inquiry report said, we need to actually follow up these words with action. Um, as we were willing and are willing to sanction Russia for what they're doing in the Ukraine, surely... Similar actions must come with similar consequences and Israel must be accountable for what it's doing in Palestine. So we must be far more proactive as an international community to stop these horrific injustices. And we should be also calling on the mainstream media to actually report what's going on in Palestine. We have daily and daily, as you said, reports on what's happening in Ukraine, but the situation in Palestine is dire. 
Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think what's been the most distressing for many Palestinians in the last week is about how used to, how business as usual, how same-same attacks on Palestinians are. So there's been some really solid media um, coverage in the last couple of weeks, and we need to give that, them credit for that. Um, there have been some instances where, where Palestinian opinion pieces, Palestinian um, voices have been heard. Fantastic. But I think we can also point to many instances where voices of um, Zionist outrage has been privileged, where the politics um, and interviewing what politicians have said and, and ignoring what Palestinians have said has certainly continued. So we certainly need to keep calling on our media to do better in terms of making sure that they are not deliberately or unwittingly buying into you know, a particular way of telling the story that continues to paint uh, the Jewish people as the victims rather than, in this case, it's the Palestinians that are the clear victims of Israeli abuses of their human rights. And as you've said, there are plenty of Jewish people in Australia and all over the world who do not support what Israel is doing to the Palestinians. Absolutely, absolutely. And for any of the Jewish groups to purport that they speak for anybody, and particularly the Zionist groups, to purport that they speak for all um, Jewish people in Australia is incredibly insulting and I'd suggest anti-Semitic. We cannot, you know, we don't think that any other community speaks with one voice. And before the federal election, you know, you had predominantly the teal independents that were promised to be delivered all the Jewish vote if they stood with Israel. But even the kind of Monash University most recent polls suggest that up to a third of the Jewish community in Australia don't even identify as Zionists. And I, you know, I do want to give a shout out to Jewish people who stand with Palestinians because for them it often costs them a lot and, and they, they lose out for their solidarity in terms of some family relationships and so forth. So all credit to them because we know it costs them. There are many people in the Jewish community who still think we, they need to stand with Israel for under anything. So for the growing number of Jewish people who stand with Palestinians, all credit and, and gratitude to them. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thanks, Dan. And I've been speaking with Jessica Morrison, who's the Executive Officer of Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, APAN. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. A lot of the boys mention about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app.
Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. We're all too aware of the disasters visited upon the communities and their environments in PNG and Bougainville of multinational mining corporations operating in their countries. Example of Teddy, Panguna, Pogra, Lahia. No alarm bells are ringing loudly about a proposed mine in Morobe province, Wafu, Golpu. I spoke with Emily Mitchell, the Research Director at Jubilee Australia Research Centre, and asked her first to explain where this proposed project is located. Well, the Wafu Golpu Copper Gold Mine, it's located in the Morobi province, which is the second most populous province in Papua New Guinea, and the mine will be located uh, near the mountains, and then there'll be a 130-kilometre pipeline that will cross across the province and then it will plan to discharge mining waste near a little village called Wagang um, on the edge of the Huon Gulf. How extensive is the actual operation on the ground without the, without the pipeline? So the Wafi Golpu Copper Gold Mine is going to be a very, very large mine. Um, it has a number of deposits available there and it would be one of the biggest mines in Papua New Guinea and among one of the largest copper gold mines in the world. Now you say it's available, what about the local people? There's a a lot of local communities that could find themselves uh, impacted by the mine's operation. Certainly the concern that Jubilee Australia has is for the communities located near the outfall, which is the communities of the Huon Gulf. A number of communities reside along the Huon Gulf coastline and depend entirely upon the ocean for their livelihood, for their subsistence lifestyle, gathering food from the mangroves uh, such as lobsters, clams, fishing. Um, Fishing is the main source of people's protein and will also be selling fish to make their income and buy basic supplies and things like that. So basically the coastal communities of the Huon Gulf could be impacted by the mine and it could have impacts on their livelihood. What's going to be in that pipe? Uh, in the pipe, there'll be the tailings, which is the mine waste, um, as well as the concentrate before it's processed out and exported. Um, but in the tailings, there's a number of minerals and there's quite a, a number of heavy metals within the tailings. So there's arsenic, lead, mercury, chromium, copper, manganese, zinc, cobalt, potassium, magnesium, and a whole bunch of others. Um, so with tailings, what it is, it's, um, it's crushed rock, water, and then um, the trace quantities of metals, and then also the additives that are used in processing. So we're actually not sure as to whether the tailings that will be dumped into the ocean will also, in addition to all these minerals, 
whether they will also have the processing chemicals that we use to extract minerals um, from these ores. And some of those processing chemicals um, could be harmful to the environment and could also have environmental impacts. Why isn't there the proposed to have a tailings jam at the site or near the site? Uh, seeking to establish the mine are Newcrest Mining, which are based in Melbourne, and Harmony Gold Australia, based in Brisbane. The companies have engaged in a number of assessments of tailings management alternatives. Uh, one of the key ways that tailings can be managed is through a tailings dam, and that's where you have all the tailings underwater in the dam, and the dam has to be kept safe um, forever with you basically never want a tailings dam to crack and explode as what happened in Brazil and, and the tailings all flow down into the river and out into the ocean. Um, so that's one of the alternatives that the company has looked into and DSTP is the alternative that they've chosen. I should add that DSTP isn't actually permitted in most countries in the world. It's only permitted by a handful of nations, Chile, Indonesia, Norway, Turkey, Papua New Guinea. Um, however, of those, Norway and Papua New Guinea are actually the only countries that permit new mines to use deep sea tailings placement. And the Norwegian government actually placed a four-year moratorium on new permits to dump mine waste into the sea in 2018. So really, Papua New Guinea is kind of alone in its commitment to DSTP uh, for new mines, especially one as big as Wafi Golpu. It's an underground mine. That's very unusual for PNG, isn't it? They're normally open-cut mines, is that right? Yes, that's correct. Why have they chosen an underground, do you know? It's like a, a new technology, but I'm not sure why they've chosen that. I should add that um, for our campaign, we're focused mainly on the coast, not so much the mine area. Can we talk more about the people that live along the coastal areas. Estimates of how many people? We estimate that approximately 400,000 people depend on the Huon Gulf. It's where they live, it's their home. Um, there's also the city of Ley, which is the second most populous city in Papua New Guinea. Ley is the proposed site for the pipeline. So usually in a, a populated city, you have businesses, schools, roads, the Australian companies Newcrest and Harmony Gold want to make this pipeline carrying all of this mining waste, 360 million tonnes, to go directly through the city of Ley. We're also concerned that in the event that that pipeline were to break or be ruptured, people living in Ley, the second biggest city in Papua New Guinea, could be exposed to the mining waste. Uh, it could be spilling out onto the street, as well as our concern for the coastal communities um, who live all along the Huon Gulf. And what say have the local people been able to have as this project gets closer to starting? We know that the company says that they've engaged in quite a number of community consultations across the country because it's quite wide-spanning in its coverage of the province, obviously. But the thing that we don't know is the content of those discussions, we don't know um, to what degree people were given the opportunity to provide their concerns in writing. We don't know the extent to which um, people were given adequate notice of meetings. 
the content of those meetings. There's just so much that we don't know about that process of consultation and community engagement. Certainly one of our concerns is that free prior and informed consent has not been given by communities. And given that their their livelihoods and their way of life are really under significant risk um, from this project's DSTP proposal, it would be important that they have consented to such a move. And we're strongly concerned that people have not given their free, prior and informed consent to this DSTP proposal moving forward. You'd be in contact with the local people. Which people know and which people don't know? Uh, So in our campaign, we've been working closely with the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Papua New Guinea and also the Centre for Environmental Law and Community Rights, which is an environmental public interest uh, law firm in Papua New Guinea. And Church and CELCOR have been engaged in meetings with communities, hosting workshops, speaking to them about their concerns. Uh, Certainly the young people are incredibly mobilised. They've been active in protests, holding banners. They even have a a bicycle advocacy group who bike ride around telling people about the message. Um, Yeah, so there has been quite a bit of opposition on the ground and the church is firmly embedded in communities. They have really strong connections uh, with villages all along the coastline and throughout the Murabi province as well. And the church has had resolutions passed on DSTP right up to a national level within the church because it's grown to such a concern. With the church, they've actually um, had a history of engaging on the issue of DSTP. When there were proposals for mining waste to be to be dumped as a result of the Ramuniku mine, the church were quite uh, passionate in their advocacy and they saw that their advocacy wasn't heard and as a result, uh, the Basimuk Bay you may have heard of it, was the site of a horrible environmental disaster where all these tailings leaked out of ponds um, into the sea and the sea turned red uh, for quite a number of uh, days. Anyway, that is the example that the church has seen and they've, they've heard from their parishioners about the impacts on them from that and so they're standing on that example of Basimuk and not wanting that to be repeated in the Huon Gulf. Um, because people across PNG have experienced environmental disasters, they've had their families exposed in different circumstances and they're aware of the risks that can happen. Uh, it's not like Australia where, you know, we haven't been exposed, we, we haven't been exposed to those kinds of situations, but yeah, a lot of people might have heard of their, their family members living near Octedi or near Ramuniku and yeah, so they're very concerned that uh, those kinds of impacts could be repeated in the Huon Gulf and those concerns are quite substantial. And then you bring into the equation the fear of earthquakes. I'm glad that you mentioned that. Um, yes, on the 11th of September there was a, a really big earthquake just near Lay in the Morobi province. Um, things were falling off shelves in shops. It, it must have been really scary for people to live through. It was um, one of the biggest earthquakes that's happened in Lay in quite quite a long time. However, around Lay, that is a very seismically active area. They have earthquakes quite frequently, certainly not to that magnitude. That was a 7.6 magnitude earthquake that time. But that's, that's very concerning. When you think about this pipeline snaking through the city and then going out to the ocean and the fact that the area is so seismically active, it does really make you concerned about where will it break, 
Where will it rupture? What impact will that have? Will the mining waste be dumped into creeks? Will it be near a school? Like, you, you just don't know, and, and that's why it's very concerning. And if this mine goes ahead, it's not going to be just a couple of years, is it? It's going to go on for many, many years. Yeah, so the, the mine life that has been estimated by the company is 28 years. So across 28 years, the companies estimate that 360 million tonnes of mining waste will be produced. However, when you actually look at the reserves that have been estimated by the companies, our experts suggest that the amount of mining waste to be produced could actually reach 1 billion tonnes, that the mine could go on far, far longer than 28 years. And 1 billion tonnes is the same roughly the same amount as what Octeti produced in mining waste and what's been dumped into the, the Fly River across Octeti's history until this year. And when you look at the environmental permit that's been provided to the companies, it actually isn't for 28 years at all. It's for 50 years. What input did the local people in either the mine area or the, or the sea area have in this process of the environmental permit? Did they know what was going on? Did they have any input at all? So that's something that we're continuing to look into, the exact knowledge that they had, the exact kind of time periods that they were aware of. It's something that we're continuing to investigate. It certainly appears that people weren't given enough information in a quick enough time frame. Um, to be provided with an environmental impact statement in English, I mean, even for someone that is university educated in Australia, it is a very, very difficult document to read. It's very complex, it's very technical, it's very, very long and it's just not an equal playing field when someone in Papua New Guinea is expected to be able to process and understand all of the risks and all of the facts in a language that isn't their primary one. People need to be provided with information in a way that they can understand and in a way where it's balanced, where they're provided information about the risks and not just you know, the side that the company know about. Certainly, we've been quite concerned about the tailings, where, where it's going to end up. The company estimates in its environmental impact statement that 60% of the tailings will end up on the ocean floor. Uh, now, when you look at fact sheets that are available on the company's website, it says that most of the tailings will end up on the ocean floor. It doesn't provide that smaller detail that actually only 60% and that 40%, which is still uh, roughly, I think, about maybe 122 million tonnes, is actually not going to make it to the ocean floor. It will be floating around in the water, being possibly accumulated by fish and other organisms. So when you when you think about that, that's just one example where people are not getting the, the full story. Uh, another aspect where people aren't getting the full story is that um, there was an independent commissioned of the company's environmental impact statement by PNG's Environmental Protection Authority. And uh, one of the scientists involved in that independent review was Professor Ralph Manor. Now, that independent review has actually never been made public. No one's ever seen what was said about the environmental impact statement. That should have been made public. That would be good. So then communities would be informed to know what independent scientists have said about this environmental impact statement. However, Professor Ralph Manor has been going out in the media and he's obviously very, very passionate about this issue because he's been uh, quite outspoken about it. He's suggested that the tailings for Wafi Golpu, um, he thinks that less than 10% are going to make it to the ocean floor. 
And so that means that 90% of that 360 million tonnes, or in the future, 90% of the 1 billion tonnes is going to be hanging around in the water being bioaccumulated and, and wreaking all kinds of environmental damage. And Professor Ralph Manor also suggests that the tailings are going to spread 30 kilometres from the outfall site at Wigang Village. So 30 kilometres in every direction, the tailings are going to spread due to the ocean currents that are available in that area. So that's quite concerning, and he's been speaking out quite publicly about this, but I, I don't think that that independent view, that his view about the tailings probably would have been articulated to communities. And he's described that Wagang is a terrible spot for DSTP, and, and he's actually a person that is an advocate of DSTP. So when he's saying that and he's reviewed the EIS independently, I, I think it's very, very concerning. So you're saying that not only the local people in the area, but also the churches and other groups or legal groups that are supporting them haven't had a chance to see that review either. So the, the independent review that was commissioned by SEPA, no one's got to see it. No one at all. Who's got it? The Conservation and Environment Protection Authority. At the government department? Yes, that's right. What have people done who are supporting people, what have they done to try and force the issue on this that makes this review public? Uh, certainly correspondence has been written to SEPA asking for the independent review to be made public, but ultimately that is a decision for SEPA. Certainly Professor Ralph Manor has been very outspoken making his views known, that then there needs to be more transparency of, around this project. Certainly uh, we've written to the company and asked quite extensive asking for further detail about the tailings, for example, what percentage arsenic might be at the ocean, what sorts of processing chemicals are going to be dumped into the ocean, what's going to be in the filtrate that's dumped into the ocean near Lay, is there going to be anything of concern in that filtrate, what was the community engagement methodology in communities where they held consultations. We've, we've asked a lot of questions and we, we didn't get answers. Have you come across a case like this in recent years where you're getting no cooperation whatsoever? Uh, yes, I have. And how do you get round that? I think it was Margaret Mead that said, never doubt that a small group of committed individuals can change the world, something along those lines. And I think that uh, when you're working in advocacy, uh, it's often the passion of a small group of people united together for a common purpose that makes things possible that would never be possible for one individual to do on their own. Um, and certainly with this campaign, No Wifey Golpu DSTP, we've found that um, people's skills and experience and expertise come from all different uh, kinds of areas and, and unite together to become a very powerful force. And I think that's the only way that you can really be a powerful advocate. You have to do it in partnership. You have to do it with the communities. That's the way that change happens. And that was pretty evident, wasn't it, a couple of years ago with the, the proposal by Nautilus for deep sea mining. That brought all the communities together. Yes, the power of people power. It's, um, it's quite inspiring and amazing to see what people can achieve when they come together with a, with a common goal and with a common passion, especially when it's going to impact on their very everyday life. Yeah, it, it's quite inspiring to see all the successes that have happened. Can you talk for a minute or two about the role of the PNG government in this issue? So um, in terms of where the mine's at at the moment, the environmental licence 
has been approved and the special mining lease has not been approved yet by the Mineral Resources Authority. And certainly something that we would like to see is that that special mining lease doesn't get approved while this current DSTP proposal is in place. So our message would be that the companies need to look at alternative tailings management practices, that this DSTP proposal is not adequate. For anyone who is interested to find out more information about this issue, about uh, WIFI Golper and DSTP, and um, interested in finding out more, uh, you can go to www.nowifigolpudstp.org and there you can see the combined campaign that Jubilee Australia has put together with the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Papua New Guinea and CELCOR and the Mineral Policy Institute. So if anyone wants to go there and have a look, we'd be really excited for people to share the page around and to get more informed about the issue. And how much time have people got before this project pushes ahead? concerning to us. Previously, um, the former Morobi provincial governor had actually launched court cases against this mine, but he was voted out of power uh, a couple of months ago. And the new provincial governor that came in, he's come out very quickly saying, I want to get this special mining lease signed by December this year. So we're concerned that it, it could be imminent. It could be any time now. And certainly that's very close. So we don't know if that's a timeline that we'll be stuck to or um, whether it may be next year, but we know that the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea was starting to be involved in negotiations about Waifi Golpu, so certainly it's escalated to a very high level within government. Yeah, and we're very concerned that it's very imminent. Thanks so much, Emily. Thank you, Jan. And Emily Mitchell is the Research Director at Jubilee Australia Research Centre. So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Pacifica family as we talk about all things Pacifica for our queer Pacifica community from news and information to covering all the arts and culture and events 
of our community for our community. PX Fano, the voice of Queer Pacifica for Australia and the world, every Saturday afternoon, 1.30 to 2 o'clock, only on 3CR, 855 AM, Community Radio. The first 100 days of a new government in many countries focuses on the positive changes in place for the citizens, not so in the Philippines. We wish to inform you that on the first 100 days of Marcos Jr. presidency, 10 were extraditionally killed, 4 were abducted and are still missing, and 37 were arrested based on trumped-up charges. Additional arrests were made recently of two Labor leaders, the KMU International Officer, Cara Tagler, and Vehicle Drivers Union President, Larry Elpiano also based on trumped-up charges. That's a message from Peter Murphy, the chairperson of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. Peter, in a country like the Philippines, a country under the control of the son of the dictator and mass murderer, Ferdinand Marcos, how difficult is it to collect this information on the first 100 days in terms of human rights violations? Well, it is hard, and uh, the main reason is that there's two levels. There's the community where these events happen, and then there's the media, and, of course, there's the government, especially the police, who all would try to report um, in some way these in, these events that, that uh, are so disturbing. And I know that the, at the level of the community-based human rights organisations, they are targeted by the government as alleged rebels um, because they're reporting on violence used by the government forces on civilians. So uh, they themselves, I think, uh, are a bit depleted in terms of documenters, they call them. So these are these are people who uh, really are volunteers and when something happens in their neighbourhood, they're meant to go and, and get statements of uh, witnesses. And sometimes the, everybody's just so frightened um, and then, of course, the documented themselves uh, are subjected to threats. Therefore, things are, are a bit slow. But eventually, uh, the story comes out. The media are uh, patchy, but they are uh, a fairly reliable source of information that could be followed up later. And, and the, the government tend to issue very um, distorted reports like... Um, now, something might have happened, but of course the, they'll claim that the person was caught in crossfire or was actually armed and attacking their, the police or the army. But uh, then everyone has to sort of unpick it and uh, get to the truth. Yeah, I think difficult, but we're dealing here with a society which has been living with this level of state violence or something like this level, you know, for 50 years and there is a system, uh, a culture even, of making sure the information finally comes out. So, yeah, that's how it is. How important is social media? Well, everybody uses Facebook in the Philippines, and, and for many, many Filipinos, Facebook is the news, and Facebook is the Internet, because it's relatively cheap, um, and most people don't have much money. 
you know, people might just spend a few pesos, like 10 or 15 pesos a, a week, and they, they might get a couple of days internet access out of that uh, on Facebook. So um, that's often the way people get the news, and that's why they're a bit vulnerable to really distorted news, depending on what feeds they're getting on Facebook. But, of course, everybody uh, is relying on uh, text messaging, especially uh, direct messaging, just for communications. Those direct messages and texts, are they safe for the people to use? They're not used by the government against the people? No, but I think we're talking... (laughs) Yeah, everything's monitored. So, you know... uh, Things like uh, Signal, Telegram even, they're meant to be encrypted and so on, but they're all uh, accessible by intelligence services. So the thing is that civilians using these to talk to each other, it's, it's not, they're not dealing with anything illegal, but they would be worried if if they felt that they were under a threat of being arrested or they were the subject to public vilification by the police through red tagging. Of course, they would be then more careful about you know, being identified through their use of uh, telephones. Looking at the statistics that have been collated, Peter, can you go through those and just how different or similar or the same are these instances before under Duterte? Has anything changed? Well, I I feel like it's the same, but it's... To me, the uh, level of intensity is, is less at this moment than in periods of Duterte. But th- unfortunately, what, what I see in these statistics, which is, you know, I see 10 people killed in the first 100 days by state forces extrajudicially, four abducted and still missing, and 37 arrested on trumped-up charges. That's the worst cases. There'll be a lot of other bad things going on uh, behind that but not so serious as that. You know, that's, uh, say, one person killed every 10 days extrajudicially. So under Duterte and under Gloria Arroyo, you know, 15 years ago, it was like three a week. So, you know, it was more intense in some times than others. But, you know, for, say... And you know, Australians thinking about um, civil society, people who speak up, people who protest. This is really a freaky level of uh, violence. And uh, you have to be brave to continue to agitate or organise for progress, you know, social progress in, in this type of environment. And in just in the last couple of days or the last week, two union leaders were arrested are they out on bail and yes. what are the charges against them? Yeah, they're now, they've been out on bail. They had to spend in only 24 hours in, in uh, the lockup, um, and that was because the court shut, you know, when they were trying to pay their bail. Um, so the charges against Kara Tagaoa, uh, she's the international officer of the KMU Labor Centre, and the other person is Larry Valbuena. He's the president of a, a chapter of the Jeepney Drivers Association called Piston. You know, I, I met Kara recently in Thailand and uh, discussed the details of these allegations against her there. So I, I got the story, I think. She was, she's flown back to uh, Manila. She's attended the court to retrieve the bail and then been arrested again on a second charge. And the same for Larry. So uh, the first charge was that of robbery, 
and the second charge was assault. The robbery charge uh, relates to uh, an incident in June 2020 at a rally against the anti-terrorism law that was held in a place called Freedom Park inside the university campus at Dilliman in, in Manila, Metro Manila. And um, Cara said to me, well, I, I heard there was a commotion, but I never saw anything. And she wasn't really aware of what was alleged to have happened. And apparently the same applies to Larry of Galbuena. It turns out that, it, that uh, there was a plainclothes police officer somewhere in the crowd uh, at that rally. This police officer was carrying a firearm and some people in the crowd bumped into him or noticed the bulge. I'm not sure of that part of the details. But there was a scuffle and uh, the, the gun and his police ID and his wallet were taken from him. So the robbery is is related to the gun and the wallet and the assault relates to him being rumbled and, and those things being taken. Now, Kara is a very slightly built uh, woman and uh, I don't know Larry, he might be a bit bigger. Kara couldn't do what's alleged to her in that she did. And, uh, you know, the event is, is over two years ago. The warrant of arrest was only provided days before Kara took that flight to Thailand. And myself, I think, oh, well, the the uh, NTFLCAC, this uh, task, national task force uh, to attack political dissidents, just chose to present the warrant to disrupt her travel plans. It's part of a bigger program, I think, of NTFLCAC to disrupt the organised labour movement and other other organised uh, civilian movements like the peasants and the women and so on. Yeah, I think that it's um, you know something to be very agitated about because these are relatively senior uh, figures in the trade union movement and the aftermath of the charges being laid, the bail being given and so on, will be that they these two people will have to be attending court for the next four or five years to get to the point where a judge will look at it and say, well, this is just ridiculous and throw it out. But but the the effect is there. We, we call it lawfare. I think in many parts of the world, even in Australia, the uh, use, the, it's the, the misuse of prosecutions or judicial processes to, to simply harass and persecute uh, individuals that the government doesn't like. And, um, you know, I think most lawyers uh, would see this as a, you know, really profession into disrepute. That's a little microcosm, I think, uh, Jan, of you know, this this particular form of tactic of uh, the the NTFLCAC and, and they've, of the Marcos government and, you know, it was the Duterte government before that. And the cost of drawing out these charges to the people, both financially and psychologically, I suppose? Yeah, it's... Um, well, I think psychologically it's difficult. Uh, Cara said to me that her parents uh, are teachers and that they uh, are already targets of uh, red tagging by the NTFLCAC and, in fact, the whole family. She said that my parents, myself, other siblings in a photograph have been put up on a, like they call them tarpaulins, we would call them a, a banner or a billboard, allegedly you know, terrorists. So there's a sort of... Uh, you know, a definite threat against their family, say, and they would be very much more alert 
to strangers being around, any surveillance being put on them. And at the back of their mind, they know that down the track with that, that type of thing, someone might shoot at them. Someone might try to kill them. So, you know, you can just imagine what that does to anybody's psychology. It's very, very difficult. It's the sort of psychological warfare and, and in, in fact, there's a genuine physical threat embodied in this process. Is there any chance of pro bono lawyers? Yeah, there's a, and again, as I said, there's a culture of dealing with this now because it's so systematic, so long uh, standing. So there's a, a few different pro bono law groups and one of them that I deal with a lot is called the National Union of People's Lawyers. So it's got a network of lawyers all over the country who are willing to take on these cases. And of course, those lawyers themselves then are subjected to the same attack. And plenty of lawyers have been killed as well as, as these other people. Yeah, Cara and Larry have got the support of the NUPL and they, you know, they, they went through this process, a simple process of um, attending the court actually finding out what the charges are in detail and posting bail. And now I'm pretty sure there'll be a legal challenge to this process because it's a, a abuse, what do you call it, a failure to provide due process to these two in that they were served uh, with warrants without any uh, access to any information about these uh, apparent charges. Like Cara, it's ridiculous that she will be charged with this and surely a judge would see that if they had a chance to put that point before the warrant was even issued. And um, Larry, I'm not quite sure of his circumstances. It might be a bit of a different argument for him, but since he wasn't anywhere near that incident, uh, that should prima facie you know, mean that the charge should, should never proceed. But, um, yeah, that's what the lawyers will be fighting over now. And what are the judges like in cases like this? Can you get a good judge and a bad judge? Well, I think that uh, experience shows that there are some good judges, but it's a bit difficult uh, to find, you know, there's not many. So it's a bit of a luck of the draw to some extent. And also there's a time factor here, Jan. So there's such long uh, gaps of time between appearances in court. For instance, uh, very recently, another case I'm very aware of, a, an organiser for Piston, this jeepney driver's uh, organisation, three years uh, on uh, trumped-up charges of carrying explosives and firearms. He was arrested while playing basketball. He obviously wasn't carrying any hand grenade or gun. So after a little while, the police changed the story and said that, oh, that these things were found in, in um, his name is Mauge, Mauge's backpack. They weren't there, of course. And then finally, you know, a court just found that, that this was uh, planted evidence and that charge was quashed, that he'd been in jail for, for three years. And uh, then as soon as he's supposedly going to be released, uh, he's charged with murder of somebody, you know, in Mindanao. And he, he was arrested in Luzon, you know, like thousands of kilometres away. He was never in a place where this murder took place. So it's just another layer, you know, of um, lawfare, a complete abuse of the prosecutorial process that this could happen. You see what I mean? This is what, this is what goes on. Well, the other issue is, well, while these human rights abuses are continuing unabated, the, the Philippines government has requested the 
International Criminal Court to halt its investigation of alleged serious crimes against the former government and its dirty war. What did the ICC reply to that letter? This, is, uh, this actually relates to a Duterte government request um, from last year. Uh, but uh, the International Criminal Court's uh, prosecutor uh, finally uh, said that this quest was actually, I think they threw it out, saying it was it was completely ill-founded and didn't relate to the uh, Rome Statute and was a, a load of garbage, uh, really. So it was a sort of um, very stern rebuff of the lawyers of uh, Duterte and that they were proceeding with the investigation. As I recall it, there was a, a sort of a media splash when uh, Duterte requested the uh, investigation of the ICC to be suspended or stopped on the grounds that the Philippine government and the judiciary in the Philippines was dealing with the alleged offences, and therefore there was no need for an international intervention. It's just baseless because there's just been nobody charged with any of the... Uh, offences which uh, the ICC have been looking at. So I think it was pretty simple for the ICC to, to throw this out. Uh, and uh, Marcos, on his side, it was, it was his spokesperson was just asked in, in a media <coughs> situation what's going to happen about the ICC. Uh, is the Philippines going to come back into the jurisdiction of the ICC? And uh, Mar Marcos's person said, no, no, we're not going to do that. So... You know, it's a, it's a sort of, a, I would say, a big mistake uh, on the part of the Philippine government to do this. The, uh, you know, there's, I'm not sure how many countries are part of the, you know, have signed up to the Rome Statute, but probably 150 out of 195 countries in the world. And um, by signing up, you're signalling that you will take action against perpetrators of crimes against humanity and crimes of aggression. These are really very serious offences. They're not trivial matters or single cases. It's a systematic and massive abuse of uh, human rights, which we're uh, talking about. And uh, Duterte signalled the Philippines is, is not going to you know, respect those things. And now Marcos is, is saying, yes, me too. We, we continue. We're not going to respect the international standard that nobody should commit these sort of crimes uh, without uh, being held to account. So should be very sensitive to this. It makes the Marcos government uh, very much uh, susceptible to uh, the accusation that they are going to continue the legacy of Marcos Sr., who was a notorious human rights abuser and uh, criminal. Yeah, I think it's a, a bad move, but who am I to advise the Marcos government? What I would be most concerned about is the people of the Philippines who now got a clearer picture that they're going to be under the rule of a president who has no real respect for their basic rights, the rights which are in the Constitution of the Philippines as well as in international covenants that the Philippines government has signed up to in the past. Where does the ICC investigation go from here? <clears throat> the next step would be the issuing of warrants of arrest. That would be the what I expect to see next. I know that the you know they've got some limitations on resources because of the Ukraine war. The ICC have sent in teams of documenters or investigators there. So 
On the other hand, this matter with the Philippines has been going on for five years now. So I, I don't think uh, we should be waiting too much longer to hear that a warrant has been issued for the arrest of either former President Duterte or some of his senior police generals and military generals. And if they refuse? They won't be able to travel anywhere, Jan, to any country which is a signatory to the Rome Statute, say Australia, for instance. They can travel to the US because the US didn't sign up. But uh, I think most of Europe, uh, many countries in Asia, they wouldn't be able to travel because each of those signatory countries would be obliged to arrest them. Well, that's something, isn't it? Not much, but something. Yeah, yeah, that's why, that's why they're uh, really arcing up, you know, against the ICC. But as I say, it's, it's sort of poorly advised for them to behave this way. Um, it would be much better if there was a trial in the Philippines by a credible judicial process that, that got to the bottom of the evidence and came up with a conclusion. And because that's not happening, international court does the job. And, and for everybody's sake, for some kind of uh, positive future for the Filipino people and the government, any government of the Philippines, they should clear this up. Absolutely. Thanks once again, Peter. Okay. Thank you for the interview, Jan. And Peter Murphy is the chairperson of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. Throughout October, Baka is hosting a series of rainbow yarning workshops for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. The workshops will include guest speakers presenting on a range of topics for LGBTIQA communities and support services. To take part, visit the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency's Facebook page to register. The Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency is a 3CR supporter. most iconic bike riding holiday, the Great Vic Bike Ride, is on from Saturday 26th of November to Sunday 4th of December. This rolling bike festival will have you pedalling along the beautiful Great Ocean Road, through the Otways and Golden Plains. Tickets include all meals, a camping spot, luggage transfers, daily entertainment and more. Sign up at www.greatvic.com.au Use promo code 3CR to get 10% off. Great Vic Bike Ride, a 3CR supporter. invite you to the 2022 Beyond the Bars CD launch on Thursday the 10th of November at Arnie Elmer Thorpe's Gathering Place, Dadi Manwaro, 546 to 550 High Street, Preston. 
There'll be a panel discussion on First Nations incarceration and justice, some live music with Amos Roach, and free copies of this year's Beyond the Bars CD. Thursday the 10th of November, Arnie Almathorpe's Gathering Place, Dadi Munmaru, 6 to 8pm. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au backslash beyond the bars. Secretary-General Guterres. With the widespread press coverage of Russian attacks by weaponised drones against Ukrainian cities, the world is now seeing the suffering and terror that has been experienced by thousands of people across the Middle East, East Asia and Africa since the United States began using these weapons on the first day of the US invasion of Afghanistan. We beg you, Secretary-General Guterres, to seize this moment of public clarity, to demand a total halt to the use of weaponised drones in the Ukraine war and globally, where killer drones are being used by a number of nations to hunt and kill, notably of late in Gaza, Ethiopia, Somalia, Syria and Kurdish regions. This is the moment to stop the spreading scourge of slaughter and terror by weaponised drones. Killer drones are a particularly inhumane type of warfare with high error rates causing the death of civilians. Moreover, killer drones seek to desensitise us from war, make war seem easier and thereby increase the chances of yet more wars. This is something we must never allow to happen. These are the first paragraphs of a letter to the United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres and it's signed by Cathy Kelly and Nick Mottern, co-coordinators of bandkillerdrones.org. Cathy is well known to Tuesday Home Time, but today I'm speaking for the first time with her co-coordinator of Bandkiller Drones, Nick Mottern. Wonderful to talk to you, Nick. Your work as coordinator of the band, that is the latest in many years of activism, how far back does this go and what started you on your work concerning with people and the world we live in? I think I became really active in anti-war work and peace and justice work after I uh, got back from being in Vietnam and the Navy in between 1962 and 1964. At that time, I was not uh, in combat. But uh, after I left the Navy, I worked partly for the Saigon Post newspaper, which was a Vietnamese-owned English-language newspaper. And I got to travel around uh, the country uh, a bit and see some of the consequences of the war. Honestly, when I left Vietnam, I thought if the United States would, uh, you know, enter the war more fully and, and get rid of the corruption over there, maybe the U.S. could, you know, and then their allies, so, so to speak, could prevail. I got back to the U.S. and I encountered, uh, you know, protests. And also, I remember when I was at Columbia University, there was a protest going on and a man came and said to me, well, you need to learn more about your history of this war. I did quite a bit of reading, and I understood that the war really was a result of meddling by the United States in the negotiations and vote 
for uh, partition in, in Vietnam that the U.S. had really betrayed people in this country and in uh, Vietnam, and that the corruption that I witnessed was really the result and very common result worldwide of colonialism, first by the French and then by the United States, and that there was no there was no correction for this other than for the people in that country to take control of their own situation, which, of course, they eventually did. And after that, I had protested over various interventions. And most recently, about 10 years ago, got very interested in trying to uh, stop drone attacks and uh, recognize that this was a form of warfare that would become more and more prevalent and more and more likely to spread conflict. And so I began to work as a retired person pretty much full-time on education about drone warfare and working with people in various parts of the United States who have been protesting drone attacks since as early as 2009 out in Nevada. And Kathy Kelly was one of the people, she's my, with me as co-coordinator of Ban Killer Drones, and she was one of, I believe, 15 people who were arrested in the first arrest around drone warfare at Creech Air Force Base, and that was in April of 2009. So that's how long the expanding uh, proliferation of, of drone killing has been identified by anti-war people as something that must be stopped. I've had other other uh, work. I at one time worked for Marino Fathers and Brothers, a Catholic missionary organization, and at that time I was involved with the American Friends Service Committee and the Mennonites and others doing speaking tours in the United States, bringing people from Africa to the United States to talk about colonialism, apartheid and U.S. military involvement in Africa, and I had a chance to travel to Africa on several occasions. And so that also is part of my experience where I can, I think, much more fully appreciate what warfare is doing in these places than if I had never traveled to any of these, any of these countries. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Drones came into being quite a long time ago. Do you believe it was inevitable that they would become... I became aware of drones being weaponized probably around 2010 because there was a company where I, near where I lived that, that made the uh, missile launcher, little platforms under the wing. And I think it, it became clear to me instantly this kind of eye in the sky that can feel death from the sky is something that is really taking human death dealing to a whole other level of intrusion into people's personal lives into their communities and making war way, way too easy, making killing way, way too easy, and that nothing good could possibly come of this. And regardless of what the government might say about precision and about legality, that this is fundamentally an illegal immoral extension of, of war and weapons, which I, I'm totally opposed to as well. But I think that I and people who are concerned about drone warfare are concerned about a kind of technology accelerating that's going to make war even more dangerous and more uniform around the world. That's why we're focused on drones particularly, as well as being, you know, basically against all war and all weapons. How is that drone technology developing? Because of miniaturization of computers and, and, and a lot of remarkable work in terms of electronic optical enhancement. You have a very, the very simple idea of putting a, a video camera on the front of a, 
of a, of a drone, either one that's like a bomb that explodes like a kamikaze bomb or one that's more like an airplane that returns, you know, back to its airport. That means that through these TV cameras, the average person on the ground can see where they're going. They can see the target ahead and they can decide when they're going to attack, either with a missile and then returning to a base or by crashing the drone into the target and having it explode. So human and material targets can constantly be hunted down, followed, and then uh, attacked. Have you also concentrated on the men and women who sit in these bunkers in the United States and direct these drones? There's been more and more experience for the people who are drone operators. I guess, what I'm saying, I guess more experience of people coming to understand the stresses that they're under, what kind of uh, emotional injury is possible in those jobs. Uh, there have been a number of suicides of drone operators. It's a job that the Air Force always has a hard time filling. I don't think they've been able to reach their quota for drone pilots since the U.S. started using these drones on the first day of the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan in October 2001. So all that time, the drone program has expanded in the U.S., but they still have a hard time meeting uh, operator quotas. There are also studies that are showing why, which is that it's a very stressful job, particularly emotionally, because when drone operators see the people they kill dying, bleeding out, it, it causes, in many cases, something called moral injury, which is a, a term that is more and more recognized. What happens when your conscience is in such great conflict with uh, the killing that you're being called on to do? Just to stop doing those jobs, to find their way out of the military. Uh, and we offer on our website, ban killer drone, courage to resist, uh, conscientious objector uh, sites, other ways that they can hi- uh, find help for themselves. How many countries do you believe are now manufacturing killer drones? Primary manufacturers of drones, uh, of weaponized drones, seem to be the United States, Israel, uh, Turkey, and China. Iran is also making weaponized drones, but not in the volume of these other countries. But because these Iranians so are, are, are said to be being used in the Ukraine war, they're really attacking white people rather than people of color uh, because they're presenting real contradiction, a military contradiction that you know the Western governments aren't prepared to deal with at the moment. They're getting a lot more attention, and one could think that the Iranians are the primary drone makers in the world, but they, they make very few drones compared to the countries that I've mentioned. Well, where are these drones? Employed, you talked about Africa before. We don't hear much about what's happening in Africa. Is that in the, around the Horn, around Somalia, Ethiopia, Sudan, around those areas? I think right now the primary drone attacks are being conducted in Somalia by the United States, which is really quite extraordinary when you realize that Somalia is also facing a, a, a huge famine. U.S. drones have conducted attacks in, in Niger and Libya at one time. There are other places, too, 
that we really don't know about. There is yet to be a full accounting publicly for all the drone attacks and, and, and all the all the casualties. Uh, the government has sometimes released figures, but they've always been very, very low compared to press reports and, and, and you know other other witnesses. So we really can't speak about the full extent of what, what's going on even right now. What do you know about the use by Israel of these drones, these weaponized drones in the West Bank and Gaza and maybe also in Syria and Lebanon? I don't have information about uh, Syria or Lebanon, but I do know that drones of a variety of sizes have been used in surveillance of people in Gaza and in killing people in Gaza. And this has been going on for probably more than a, more than a decade. One of the things that's very important to understand is that drone surveillance, you know, by the military, particularly and by the, by some police is, is a form of intimidation and terror, just the way drone attacks are. And I, and in the case of, of, of Gaza and the West Bank, the surveillance of Palestinian people that goes on is a, gross form of violation of the people's rights. And when people know and, and hear drones in the air, regardless of whether they're doing surveillance or whether they're attacking, the assumption that people make is that they may be killed at any moment. This is a devastating experience. There was a study done by a group called Al-Karama out of Geneva of drone attacks in Yemen and effects of people living under drones. People experience PTSD, the terror and, and fear, uh, even among, you know, and maybe especially among children of going outside of hearing the sound. This is a weapon that is, is not precise and it's killing spread terror in uncontrollable and, and very ill-defined ways. These are all things that people in the, in the Western world, so-called, industrialized countries have no experience of. And it's hard for, I think, people to imagine. And the only thing that's broken through that is what's happened in the Ukraine war. People much more identify with, in this country, being mostly a white country, identify with what's happening to people in Ukraine at the hands of uh, a drone attack. Well, your campaign in the United States has been going for quite a while. Are there similar campaigns in European countries? Well, Germany is really a very, very interesting case because it probably has the most well-developed anti-war movement organizations of any country in, in the world, more so than the United States. Of course, that uh, is very much related to history of Germany from 1932 forward. For at least eight years, anti-drone forces in Germany had a lot of sympathy in, in the parliament. Germany is the only place where the use of weaponized drones was debated within the parliament. Should we do this or should we not? And when it moved into this realm of the Ukraine war, Germany found itself under immense pressure from the United States to much more militarize, spend more money on weapons. And in that surge of pressure, uh, the German parliament basically dropped their resistance to weaponizing drones that they were uh, leasing from Israel. This was really a, a very 
understand the kind of change, but it's not necessarily a settled issue in Germany because there's been a lot of pushback now against, you know, not, not only weapons to Ukraine, but much pushback against Germany rearming itself, becoming a, a, like a, the major military force in Europe again. It's to the great credit of any war people in Germany that, that, they, that they're continuing to stand up against this. And we could come to a time when, once again, they would not want to arm, uh, arm drones. Uh, so we're very hopeful, you know, maybe could turn around there. What about the other countries in Europe who have U.S. bases on their soil, often have nuclear weapons? On their, on their soil, are they also aware of what's going on with drones and are they involved in that drone, Reaper drone? France purchased Reaper drones from the United States to use in Africa, where France still has imperial intentions. Italy has allowed the United States to operate drones from bases, you know, in particular in, in uh, Siganella in, in Italy, and there are Italian uh, any war people and, and lawyers who uh, have opposed that. Poland has allowed uh, a U.S. drone base to be established there. I think, if I'm remembering correctly, so has Romania. To our knowledge, none of those U.S. weaponized drones have so far been used in the Ukraine war. But there is various you know, pressure within the U.S. military and George Will, he's a commentator here, for U.S. weaponized drones like the Reaper drone, which is a large, you know, 77-foot wingspan aircraft. Gray Eagle drones used by the U.S. Army to be turned over to the Ukrainian government to be used in the war against Russia, which would be an extremely dangerous thing to do because they can carry uh, Hellfire missiles and, and uh, the Reaper can carry 500-pound bombs deep in, inside of Russia. And use of those drones would be viewed as an extremely provocative and dangerous step by the Russians. And so that, that's what I can tell you about weaponized drones from the U.S. European countries. When did your group decide to send a letter to the United Nations Secretary General? And can you just briefly outline what you put in that letter? Thank you. Yeah, we we decided when we saw the Iranian drone uh, being used in volume and, and this getting as much publicity as, as it's been getting, our state, we decided we should write an open letter to the UN Secretary General to ask him to call on all parties to stop using drones in the Ukraine war and also to ask that there be a stop in any attack by weaponized drones, using a weaponized drones by any group or country against another group or country. And, and we observed in, in, in the statement that because of this publicity, millions of people are now aware of the harm that has been done in the last 20 years to people in the Middle East, East Asia, and Africa by drone attacks. Through some miracle, the UN Secretary General might call on all parties to stop using drones rather than simply allow the Iranian drones to be criticized uh, independent of all the other drone slaughter that's been going on. How long ago did you send the letter and have you had acknowledgement? We sent this as a, as we just basically sent this as an open letter, which meant that it's uh, been published and, you know, as, as a press release. Previous to this, 
we have conducted a postcard campaign to the U.N. Secretary General. It's been going on for almost a year now, and we've had hundreds of postcards sent to him calling for an international treaty to ban the use of weaponized drones. And we haven't received any acknowledgement from that. I don't think we'll receive any acknowledgement from this. I think we have to understand that the U.N. is very much under the control of the United States. Uh, I don't know that the Secretary General sees himself that way, but uh, it's highly unlikely that he's going to uh, make any statement about this because it would be very, very disruptive to U.S. plans for the expansion of the use of weaponized drones and, and much more automated, artificially intelligence-driven warfare. What we're seeing now are what one could say are primitive drones compared to what's coming in terms of, you know, machine decisions and machine-driven warfare. We're headed down a path where uh, the United States, let's say the industry, uh, the war industry in the United States, preparing itself, as I said, for more artificially, you know, machine decision warfare against China and possibly against Russia if they develop more technology. But I think as you read military uh, statements and follow the development of various weapons, it appears that the United States feels that its chief competitor in terms of machine-driven warfare uh, is China. And so uh, there's this kind of, I don't know, enthusiasm among a number of people in the, in the military and, and in the arms industry for constantly being ahead of China in terms of killing capacity, which eventually always what comes down to what we're seeing in Ukraine is that regardless of who is, you know, flying an airplane, whether it's being piloted from remotely or whether it's a human pilot in it, Civilian population is going to be the one that, that will suffer and be ground down into pulp. And, and tragically, this kind of mentality is, is, is spreading, and that's, that's one reason we're witnessing what we're seeing in Ukraine right now. Well, you could get depressed and you could say that it doesn't give us much hope for the future when you've got military and government officials and Weapons manufacturers so enthusiastic about getting the latest machine that can kill, kill, kill and better than the other person can. I mean, that's always been warfare, but it's up a lot more notches now, isn't it? Well, it, it, it doesn't. And, and I think it also speaks to, to the way we, well, I mean, all of us humans are very subject to uh, government uh, statements and, and to advertising and to uh, depiction of other people in certain ways, that really takes the humanity out of the equation. And, and once you've done that, it paves the way for, for really horrible, horrible human consequences. And, and uh, the, the job of politicians really should be to not go to war, not what it is right now is, is, is feeling that, you know, we have these uh, tools for conquest, and conquest is a perfectly legitimate position, political position to take. We want to be number one. And I'm afraid in the United States, that's a very common sentiment, which is, of course, where 
war comes from. When you decide we must be number one, then it leaves it open for people who are extremely wealthy who see advantage in going to war or grabbing somebody's oil or gas or mineral to say, well, in order to be number one, we have to go up against this other country that is also trying to be number one. Or we have to go up against these people who won't make deals with us the way we want. I mean, this has been going on in human history since the beginning, but now what we're seeing is that the machines that we've made to do this can finish the life of humans on Earth. And I think that's what we're, what we're looking at right now. Well, where does it really groups like yours? Well, it, it, it leaves us trying to get out in the street to educate people, uh, to offer alternatives. One thing I think that we're going to start doing here is calling for not only uh, people to leave off from these weapons, but also for people to stop using so much uh, of our resources, gas, oil, particularly because of what it's doing to the environment. Starting uh, organizing uh, something called the Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal, which will have hearings a year from now. What we're saying in the War Crimes Tribunal is that four of the largest companies in, in the military manufacturers in the U.S., Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Raytheon, and the drone maker General Atomic, were saying that people running these companies have a, a moral responsibility to see what their weapons are doing and to not keep making those weapons, regardless of whether the government orders them or not. We were inspired in this by war crimes tribunals held for German industrialists after World War II uh, that were part of the Nuremberg trials. Committee in the U.S. Senate after World War I that in the 1930s investigated how weapons makers were not only profiteering, but also how their activities around the world were causing countries to be more in conflict as they would sell weapons to one country and then say, well, your neighbor, they go to the neighbor and say, well, you're, you know, your, your neighbor now is arming up, so you need to arm up. So this has been a, this, the, the, the behavior of these corporations has been a big problem for a long time. What we're doing, I don't think, is going to put a total halt to it. But what we're going to try to do is show with witness testimony over the last 20 years where these weapons have been used, what the human consequences have been. Because for most people in, in, in the United States, they have not had adequate reporting on the human consequences of the wars that the U.S. has conducted. And as I said before, these are all people of color. And so that's something, too, that is part of the racism that is, is very, very powerful in our country. And it's very sad to say, but that's what we're going to try to break through a little bit with the testimony. And we're going to try to create hope and expectation that people who make weapons will engage their conscience and that people who have been investing in weapons will also hear more from their conscience about what is being called because without these weapons makers, there would not be wars right now. Well, the government, would they make weapons? Well, we're calling on people who make weapons for government to look to their conscience about what the what the impact is. And this is something that hasn't been done before, and we're hoping that it will have some small effect in the midst of what is a, a really expanding tragedy. I dare say I'll hear more from 
perhaps you and Kathy or maybe Brian, how this tribunal is going. Yeah. You can find out some, some of the basics of the tribunal if people want to go to look at merchantsofdeath.org. You'll find out more particulars. And if people want to send petitions to their elected officials in Australia, they should go to bankillerdrones.org. Basically, um, they'll find a lot of information about drone warfare. The website has just been reworked, and I think the petitions will be on it again within the next few days. But if people write down bankillerdrones.org uh, and check that out within the next week, they'll find more information. I think, you know, one way to really think about this, too, is, is, is through the eyes of, of uh, people on the receiving end of drone attacks. And right now, we're trying to raise money for a, a man named Adele Al-Mansari, who is a Yemeni man with four of his cousins to uh, oversee some kind of land deal in Yemen in March of 2018. And for whatever reason, although they weren't connected with any terrorist group, the United States hit their car with a Hellfire missile. His four cousins were killed, and he was left with severe injuries to his hip, to his left arm. There was no money forthcoming from the United States government. We've been, you know, we and Reprieve have been after them for some time now to uh, compensate this man and his family, which has not happened until we had to raise money privately through GoFundMe just to have him be able to have a really emergency surgery back in May of this year because the veins and and, uh, and his legs were being so constricted that he, he might have lost his legs and maybe his life. The money was forthcoming. He was flown from Yemen to Cairo with two of his sons to look after him. And that was in, in May. Just this last week, he had to have another operation uh, after a hip replacement to drain uh, infection out of out of the uh, surgery from his hip operation. And so he's still in the hospital. And that's five months after he was flown uh, to Cairo. His daughters weren't able to continue their schooling. Uh, the whole family has been disrupted by this one drone attack that occurred, as I said, in March of 2018. There are thousands of Adele Almanzaris in different countries around the world. And the notion that these drone attacks are precise is a part of the propaganda that somehow the war can be conducted in some kind of a sanitized, you know, uh, very nice, polite way, when in fact it's just one horror after another. And there's a very interesting book in the United States called Humane by a man named Samuel Moyne, M-O-Y-N, that talks about drone warfare as, as part of a process that has been underway for probably almost over 100 years of trying to persuade the public that there is a way to contain war, to protect civilians, and on and on and on. Now we see in Ukraine, war is what you know, Tolstoy said it is something that we shouldn't do. It, it's so interesting how technology is constantly being used to persuade people that killing can be done in an okay way. Thank you so much. We, I really appreciate this opportunity and wish you all really well. And Nick Motton is co-coordinator of the group bankkillerdrones.org.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.